Welcome to episode 238 of Destination Linux. Whether you're brand new to open source or a guru of sudo, this is the podcast for you. My name is Michael, and with me today are Ryan, Jill, and Noah. And on this week's episode of Destination Linux, we have an interview with Wojtek Pavlik for the Vice President of Linux Systems Group at SUSE. We're going to be discussing job opportunities and things you can do to prepare yourself for a new career in an open source company. Then we're going to cover AMD's and Valve's latest endeavor to further improve Linux. Plus, we have our tips, tricks, and software picks. All this and more coming up right now on Destination Linux. We're only two weeks from the first ever DLN MegaFest. So be sure to mark your calendars for Sunday, August 22nd, because at 3 p.m. Eastern or 1900 UTC, we're going to be celebrating 30 years of Linux yeah. with a Megafest. <laughs> Previously, we've done Lugfest and GameFest, where the DLN community gets together to hang out and talk for Linux and open source with the Lugfest and the GameFest, where we all compete for the gold medal in Staying Alive, the longest award. But I've won. Yeah, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes. Uh, but this time we're, we're combining the Lugfest and the Gamefest to make our first ever Megafest. So join us on August 22nd to jump in and geek out on Linux. In our community feedback this week, Benjamin writes in and Benjamin says, Dear Destination Linux, in episode 235, it was discussed how some easy repairs can greatly extend the lifespan of devices. It reminded me of a time when my neighbor had tossed their computer out on the curb with a sign that said, Free! Of course! I brought it home. The computer did have one problem. It was having difficulty connecting to the Wi-Fi network. I opened the computer and realized that one of the antennas had become detached. I simply reattached the antenna and the computer began to work perfectly again. I returned it to my neighbor to see if she wanted it back now that it was working and she was very grateful because she had no idea it was a simple fix. It just makes me wonder how much e-waste is generated because users think their device is broken. And what can be done to make users more aware of this issue? When is it time to replace a device? And when can an old device be handled in the most environmentally friendly way? Thanks again for the great show, Benjamin. So, uh, Benjamin, I guess what I would start out by telling you is that there's two parts to that. First, there's the education part, right? In where we go through and say, hey, here is how to understand technology and, and, and how to leverage it for yourself. I think the other part of that is an an onus on the manufacturer to build things and for us to purchase things that have a long life longevity. I know for myself anyway, a lot of times things wind up in the trash because frankly, they're old and cheap and not worth fixing. Whereas if I had something that, you know, all of the parts were modular or could be replaced, certainly I would try to drag as much life out of that. What do you guys think? So this is actually how I acquire a lot of the equipment that you see on the DOS Geek channel is I go out there on eBay and I purchase broken items out there. The $1,600 laptops, the, you know, $2,000 pieces of equipment will be sold for a third of their price on eBay if you look specifically for the fix or broken section. And a lot of times it can be as fix as simple as cleaning out the charging ports because there's so much junk that's been crammed into charging ports. Sometimes it's replacing a swelled battery. Sometimes it's more in depth. There are times where it's so broken that I, you know, it's a lottery, right? And even I don't want to spend the money to fix it. Although that's very, very rare, but this is why it's so important. The right to repair is because people actually learn about the hardware to the point they can replace it. And why I love things like the framework laptop, because for those who don't have the time to actually learn how to go in and do repairs on a laptop, 
including up to board level repairs. The framework laptop is modular, so you could literally pull out the main board in a module and put in a new board to upgrade it. You could pull out your ports that have gone bad and put in moduli, just literally like you stick a USB drive in, at least in theory. We'll see when we get these laptops. Um, but the idea of modularity, I think, is critical to really reducing e-waste and also stopping people from looking at things as throwaway tech. I mean, this stuff is so rare. We're kind of starting to see it for the first time ever now that cars are on back order, processes are on back order, CPUs, graphics cards, all of anything that uses a chip, a vacuum cleaner that's a smart vacuum cleaner, your smart refrigerator, all of these things are out of stock because we're out of these chips. We can't manufacture enough of them. And this is why people taking it and throwing it into the trash is such a travesty on top of the fact that it just goes into landfill. So I, I think there's a lot of really good points made here by Benjamin and why people should be really concerned about right to repair and also looking at when they're buying equipment, making sure it's equipment that you actually can repair. Yeah. You know, in all the years I've been collecting computers um, for my hardware museum over the many many years I've been collecting, a lot of them have come from sellers on eBay or from my students that they said they don't work anymore. Yeah, like Ryan was saying, usually it is an easy hardware fix. Sometimes it's just a simple BIOS battery placement or a bad hard drive. The computer itself is just fine. And many times it's a Windows issue, Windows update gone awry or issues with spyware and viruses. Linux to the rescue. <laughs> nice. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Definitely. But yeah, we we really need to become a society that thinks more about keeping our electronics out of the landfill. What are your thoughts on e-waste and how we can maybe eliminate your e-waste? We love hearing from our worldwide community. And so what we want you to do is we want you to get your official DLN mug. We want you to fill it with some coffee or bubbly. Sit down at your nearest stool and send an email to comments at destinationlinux.org. You want to participate in the community discussions? Well, then simply join the community forum by going to dlnforum.com. This episode, it's brought to you by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean recently announced their new managed MongoDB service. What the heck is a Mongo managed DB service? Well, it's database as a service with MongoDB. And that means that you can focus more on building scalable, high-performance apps and less about maintaining the database. Unless you're a database admin, you don't want to do that. It's just part of the larger larger product. So with DigitalOcean and their database as a service, simply offload the MongoDB administration to DigitalOcean and let them handle all of the stuff because they have the automation to handle the provisioning, the managing, the scaling, the updates, the backups, the security, all the things that you don't want to focus on, DigitalOcean will focus on for you. So help them help you. DigitalOcean has built the service in partnership with MongoDB, and they work together and have ensured that you're going to get access to the latest releases of MongoDB uh, database as they become available. Now, as a listener of the Destination Linux podcast, and of course, as a member of the DLN community, you can get started for free. Actually, it's better than for free because you can go to DigitalOcean and get, they'll give you a $100 credit when you go to do.co slash DLN dash Mongo. That's do.co slash DLN dash Mongo. Again, do.co slash DLN dash Mongo to get started with that $100 free credit on DigitalOcean and their new managed MongoDB service. And of course, a huge thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of Destination Linux. There are many in the community who are looking for a chance to change careers or maybe start their careers with open source companies. So we wanted to invite someone on to discuss what it's like working at an open source company and what are some things that you can do to prepare yourself for a career 
at an open source company. So uh, joining us this week is Wojtek Pavlik, the vice president of Linux Systems Group at SUSE. Uh, Wojtek, thanks for being on the show. And, you know, welcome to the show. Really happy to be with you here today. So we love finding out about our guests in addition to having them to talk about the thing. But we want to talk about your journey in Linux. So tell us, what was your first experience with Linux? Well, actually... Yeah, I have to recall that. It was a friend of mine bringing in a huge stack of floppies. <laughs> That's how it always starts. Yeah. Yeah. To, <laughs> to awesome. install that on my, uh, I think it was a 486 computer back then. Because I was quite tired about, oh, well, going to Windows, right? I, I, I learned my programming on DOS and I really liked the command line interface. And so I was, look, I was looking for something that could replace DOS and be hackable uh, enough to actually be able to understand all of it. And yes, yeah, so I did know pretty much all the internals of DOS back then. So yeah, I was, I was asking friends around and it was a version of Slackware, I believe, that was on those floppies. I installed it and I loved it. It was a little bit unwieldy back then, still running on a kernel, something like 0.99, I believe. But it worked, and, and it was it. What was it about Slackware coming from the DOS world into the Slackware that made it so appealing to you? Like, What was it that made it stick in your mind at that moment? Well, f the first thing was like it was the way forward, right? Because DOS was ending, it was going to be replaced by uh, pretty much locked down Windows uh, 95 back then. You know, for the first thing is you look at the operating system and it actually does what it's what it's supposed to do, and that's that's cool. Then that's something that I really loved about it, uh, and and the reason why I actually in the university I back then studied physics was there is sources, so I can if if something is not working or if something is if I don't understand something about it, I can drill as deep as I like to figure out why, yeah. right? And 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 that also like drew me to physics because well. If you are asking questions about the universe, you can drill as deep as you like and you will keep finding answers. So, so that was it. And after that, I was looking around and actually understanding the concept of the GPL and the uh, open source free software licensing. And, and, and that idea was, was just mind blowing, right? Using the copyright to actually enforce availability of software and enforce the hackability of everything. And I was like, okay, this is it. This is going to change the world. I need to be there. I love and, that. And so today I'm actually doing, well, actually managing, not coding anymore, but yeah, open source software instead of doing physics. How amazing is that? That that, that moment was such a life-changing moment for you in a way, right? That it was. It experiencing was. Experiencing that, yeah. yeah. Back then I was browsing like the kernel.org. It was not kernel.org. It was some, some university in, in Helsinki, I believe, where Linus was actually. Uh, that, that's where the kernel archives were, right? And I was browsing through directory structure on the FTP server, and there was a sound file instead of just the tar files of the sources. And I was like, okay, what's that? And it was the recording on Pinky and Brain when they were saying, okay, Pinky, <laughs> oh, Brain, what are, what are we going that's to do tomorrow? Cool. I love that. Oh, awesome. <laughs> Uh, oh, the same thing we do every night, Pinky. Try to take over the world. Yay. And yeah, I said, yeah, yeah, that is it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Now that's some inside information I've never yes. heard before. How incredible. I love that. Um, so this passion that you have took you to becoming the vice president of the Linux Systems Group. So how did you end up working for SUSE to begin with? And then tell me at a high level what you do for SUSE. 
Uh, actually, the hiring experience was also kind of incredible because it was simply that, well, one day I got an email if I would like to work for SUSE in 99, in 1999. And a couple of days later, I actually had uh, the director of engineering knocking on my door, asking me if I would like to join the company, like physically knocking on my door. That's incredible. Uh, and, I, and, and, and the offer worked back then was, okay, you can work on pretty much anything in Linux as long as you do it well, uh, and we will pay, pay you for that. And I will say, hmm, how, ki- how can I say no? Right. <laughs> that's no, no, exactly. not quite long, no longer the case in, in the company. It's, it's, it's no longer the startup that it used to be, at least at SUSE. But, but still, there is a lot of freedom uh, in what people can work on. I was really hoping you were going to say you all still do that because I was going to go downstairs and wait for that knock <laughs> on my door. But, um, so what is a day in the life of what you do? I, I'm afraid that I'm doing pretty much the same thing that everybody in the COVID times does, and that is sit in front of a camera most of the right. time, yeah. talking to people. And h- how I would phrase it, mostly translating from English to English between people so that um, <laughs> like sales understands what engineering is saying and vice versa. And well, even within engineering, that work is always there to make sure that like... I know that job. That's a page. very important job. It really is. And a tough one at that and of course a little bit of dreaming and actually injecting those dreams into other people's heads maybe uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah and sometimes I still love to just find a quiet moment and code a bit when, <laughs> when that mm-hmm. is possible Wojtek, tell me a little bit about your um, the nature of your job. So, for example, did you work in non-open source jobs before you came to SUSE? Not really. Well, I mean, before actually finding open source, before, before learning about open source. Um, so in the early nineties, I actually owned a tiny software company uh, as a co-owner and we were writing things like text to speech synthesis software for, uh, for visually impaired people such that they could use a computer. So it would read the text on the screen, uh, and, and, and tell it out loud through a speaker. Uh, that still required some like specialized hardware with a DSP processor because the main CPU of the computer was not able to do it. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and that was developers and closed source software, right? Because the idea about, of open source was, was not really, uh, well, did not reach me back then yet. Nevertheless, when we, when we concluded that business and I started working on Linux at SUSE, I just said, okay, let's open source all of that. And so it is now available publicly. It, was not developed further because it was very much tied to that specialized hardware. Made that transition as well there. So, so what led to the, what, what kind of things led to that decision for you to say, I am going to work almost exclusively inside of that open source land. I might have job offers or there might be opportunities over here, but this is where I'm going to focus. What led to that decision? Well, um, I would say probably everybody wants to have an impact on the world. Right, but hopefully a bigger one than a smaller one, mm-hmm. and and writing that screen reader software. Well, I was able to help maybe a hundred people in the country that were using computers at that time were able to afford that specialized card. Uh, and actually, well, could not see the screen because it was specific to the Czech language only. It would never like pass the borders of the country unless we. Redone, we've redone that completely. Now, hacking on the Linux kernel, even if you put a very small change in, uh, that will actually be running on like millions of computers today. 
So that actually leaves a much bigger trace in the history, right? So, so that was one of the amazing things about open source. And that's, that's why I thought, okay, well, yeah, yeah, this is actually a way for many people to, to impact the world and, and change it for the better. Very cool. And then when you look at it, right, how much of today's stuff is running on open source? Half it's the internet, yeah, at least. Yeah. Uh, and, and I don't know, things like climate models or whatever else. It's, 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 it is incredible. And that is thanks to all the people that did their tiny part. We're in outer space now, right? With the rovers and everything oh, else. Oh, right. Incredible. Yeah, actually, yeah. Linux was flying on Mars, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. What is the work culture like at SUSE? You know, what are your favorite parts? And, you know, what is still a work in progress? I have to say, I mean, I, I probably will be a little bit, a little bit cliche here, right? But it's, it's, it's pretty much open. It's, it's very direct, actually. That's sometimes, um, and, and that is kind of inherited from, uh, you know, the old open source mailing lists, uh, where people were not really trying to be very careful to each other. So, well, we are a lot more developed at, at SUSE, but still mm-hmm. being direct is, is a value. Go, go direct for, for what you want to say, no nonsense, but at the same time, be very fl- friendly, supportive, uh, inclusive. One thing that, that always amazed me is that the culture also includes the fact that you, that, that you define your own role in the company, right? So you may be a developer, but Based on what you learn, what what you can do, what you try to do, you can in the end, if if you if if you are good at it, you can you can drive the direction of that piece of technology yourself. Pretty much, it is not that you would be put in a box, told to write that particular piece of code. If if you if you are actually interested and you learn stuff, well, then you will be able to use that knowledge and actually drive the direction of the products. For someone who's still planning their career or who wants to make a complete career change, what is your recommendation? We get this question a lot regarding certifications. So maybe they're in a completely different field today. Maybe they're just starting their career and they want to get some certifications so that one day they could work at a company like SUSE. What are some of the credentials you think they should look at, focus on getting? Well, that's um, that may be a strange answer, but a strange answer. But um, actually, we don't care about certifications all that much, unless you are trying to get a job, let's say, in IT administration, right? But if if you are if you are to join SUSE Engineering, well, then uh, the qualification that we are looking for is actually like: Have you contributed to open source software before? Have you been able to find a bug in a software that you have been using? And actually not, not just find it, but also fix it. And maybe the, sometimes the hardest part is actually like join the relevant community and get your fix in because that requires actually convincing uh, other developers that you are right and that the patch is correct and that it actually has merit. Uh, and that's a skill by itself. So that's something that we are looking for in, in, in engineering when we are hiring and a GitHub Git log <laughs> really tells us a lot about about the history of of, of a person uh, and if if their skills are matching what's in the, in their CV. No, that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. So when you say you don't look at certifications, how would you suggest someone put that experience kind of in their resume? So let's say they're coming from a different career entirely. 
but they've been working on some open source projects and contributing code and things like that. On most resumes, there's an area for education or certifications. Would you recommend they take that out entirely or that they put something? No, it's, it's absolutely fine to have it there. And, and yeah. yes, it will bring bonus points. Yes, but it's, it. it's, it's not like the main thing for us. Uh, but if, if they actually have contributed to some open source projects, listing them, uh, potentially with, with like straight away the comments, um, yeah, it, it that's going to grab your a, attention. That's going to grab that. our attention for sure. Yeah. Love it. SUSE is, of course, also providing certifications, but, but again, they are mostly for the user end, for the administrator end, for the sysadmin end of things. Uh, and they are valuable, but not necessarily when you want to, um, when you want to land a SUSE engineering job. A lot of people are sitting at home and they're playing with their home servers or they've heard about Linux or they've started to work on a skill set and they've practiced inside of their home lab and, and those kinds of things. But maybe they've not tuned their home lab or the way they've set their systems up for a career. What kind of advice would you give to somebody who says, hey, I'm willing to set up a home server, I'm willing to set up a, a home lab, that they could have real hands-on experience that would help them actually land a job? Well, I would say pretty much any open source project is 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 good enough to start and, and to learn how to program and how to actually live in this environment but uh, for sure I can only recommend to just grab an installation image of OpenSUSE which is available on OpenSUSE.org and then actually look at any annoyances or bugs that are there and there is always some uh, in open source projects right and getting them back into the project and and that will also surely get our attention if you if you start being a prolific contributor to the open source project itself, even if it's not necessarily a lot of deep coding, but maybe just packaging or well, just it is pretty much as an art uh, as 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 programming as. But yes, it will it will get you on our radar, and we maybe even be reaching out to you in that case. I love that. So what are some ways you personally keep up with changes in technology so you're always up to speed? Well, outside of my work, I've been really into 3D printing recently. So. Oh, yes. Fun. So much yes. fun, isn't it? <laughs> it's like magic. I love yeah. inviting people over to my house and who may not even be in technology and running the 3D printer. And it's like you're showing them fire for the first time in so many cases. <laughs> it's <me>. amazing. <laughs> Well, actually, actually, one of my friends is is, is calling my three D printer the fireplace, uh, <laughs> because because you can just watch it for hours on uh, without end, right? Because mm -hmm. it, it is like 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 the fire in that in, in that regard. Not just not just it's it's an as a transforming invention or transforming technology to have at home uh, as fire would be, but it's it's also as mesmerizing. Actually, I got a sticker on my 3D printer that says, watching printing is my meditation. <laughs> <laughs> nice. nice. Well, yeah, so, so, so suddenly watching that technology and actually did a few patches for the Prusa firmware as well. One of the technologies that I was personally very much interested in and involved in was a kernel live patching, if you've ever mm. heard about oh, that. Oh, yes. Nice. It wasn't yeah. SUSE the first to start doing that? Well, that's correct. Actually, <laughs> I had I had my hands in that a bit uh, myself. Nice. Um, oh, wonderful! Did did uh, I I did code uh, the live patching assembly for the IBM 390Z series mainframe? <laughs> that was actually a fun experience. I I took a a week to to do that, 
and I had to find uh, like the assembly instruction manual. And, and IBM publishes that, but the problem is that all the new ones are kind of really massive because they contain all the instructions that the mainframe can do, and they've been adding instructions over decades, so it's it's just immense. And learning assembly of the 390 from that was kind of impossible. So in the end, I found a copy of a lecture book from from the 60s, a, a copy that was written on a typewriter that actually did an introduction to the 390, and I was able to learn the assembly from that and, and actually mm -hmm. code it up. So yeah, that was a lot of fun. Sousa was was one of one of the one of the companies that, well, not the first one in the world to actually introduce live patching for sure, because live patching has a long long history, but the first one to get it upstream into the Linux kernel with a fully open source solution. That's awesome. I'm very curious. What is what if someone who has they don't really have a lot of experience, but they have a ton of passion, and maybe they have like a lot of education in, in terms of programming, but they're not really in the they don't have that a lot of work experience. Like they're just out of college and that sort of stuff. Like, what do you think is a good starting port for someone who has that situation? Well, again, I'll be repeating myself because there is there's just just no other way than if you are lacking experience, but you have all the knowledge, all the skills honed from university, getting your hands dirty with code, right? Any code. You may know all the algorithms, but unless you have spent hours actually staring at code and figuring out the bugs and implementing all the algorithms that you have learned about, you will not be very productive. And 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 so open source is like a, a godsend for that because there is a huge amount of projects that that you can just dive in and 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 start improving. At the same time, I kind of feel that today there is so much of open source available everywhere uh, to actually start working with that people kind of stay back and say, okay, that's too much for me. That's like moving too rapidly, changing too much. Uh, if I don't do that, somebody definitely will. Uh, well, that's not true, right? right. You, everybody has their own itch to scratch, something that isn't bothering them with their computer that is not working right and, and going down and drilling to find that bit that is actually not working right or not working the way that you like uh, is the best motivation to start understanding code. A lot of programming is about not writing code, but reading code, oh, reading yeah. other people's code. So actually learning those patterns and being able to understand code quickly is even in a regular programming job like a super important skill that is not taught right because everybody assumes that well you come to a blank sheet and then you start coding and then you have a program and maybe then you debug it unless you are writing the perfect code but in reality <laughs> you are always coming to a spaghetti mess of somebody else's code that you have to understand first and, and, and find the issues with it well it's interesting that you talk about the the you know getting reading the code is an important thing we we actually have uh, many experiences this you know this week we start we switched to Jitsi to do our recording and that Ryan had to learn how to use the Jitsi by just staring at the code for a long time so there and like just setting everything up there is a, a facet of even configuration and system administration that is about that too and it's funny you mentioned how you know looking at the code is is just as important as writing the code it really is yeah I'm not really a programmer I'm more of a designer but I do dabble a little bit in some encoding stuff and I contributed to KDE Plasma for uh, KWIN directly, the window manager for KDE Plasma, because I was just, I saw something that it needed to be changed, and in my opinion, and I thought, 
I, uh, I should tell him about this. And then I thought, well, I wonder how hard it is to do this myself. So I then looked into the code and like, oh, I could do this. And then I, I just made the change, submit it to them. And they're like, oh, thanks. Great for that. That, you know, appreciate that. We'll, we'll put it in the system. And I was, so I am now a contributor to a big project that originally I would have looked at that and gone. He's not going to hire you, Michael. Quit trying. But you are just making my point, right? That's, yeah. This is exactly it. Like, like the, the point mm-hmm. where, you, where you realize I can actually do that. Yeah, is, exactly. That, that's the amazing experience, right? Because it's not hard. It, it just requires some perseverance and some willingness to chew through the layers to actually find the source. I of think the movies and TV shows ruin this for a lot of people because anytime they show a hacking scene or somebody writing a program, <laughs> it's just like they automatically know everywhere to go and everything else. When I've watched my developers create software, it's more of like sitting online, looking at what somebody else did, taking pieces of that, sticking it in their own, own code, trying to figure out how to get it to run. Uh, there's a lot more of research. There's a lot more uh, mistakes and, and things that come up. And it is about perseverance, really, of st- sticking with it until you find that solution um, in there. So we've talked about the skills and your your own life and what you're talking about here is a perfect example of what you're saying for people to do that want to switch careers. Because you just mentioned 3D printing. You got involved in it and then you saw an issue in a code and you went and fixed it. You're getting involved directly in these things and that people were going to notice that. But as somebody who has also hired hundreds of people over the years, I've come across many people who have all of the skills. They're very capable coders. They're very capable individuals, but they don't have what their mama was supposed to teach them, a good personality. So when I ask that, I ask, what are the most important personality traits you think someone needs to be successful at SUSE? Well, it's not just SUSE. It's pretty much the programming world as as a whole, but nevertheless, uh, in SUSE as well. And the number one, I would actually uh, say, is adaptability, right? Because the software world keeps changing all the time, and so must we. There is just just no way to expect that you learn one thing, and that will carry you through through your whole career, right? There is always new new stuff uh, coming in, and and a big portion of my team is kernel programming because well, kernel is perhaps most critical component of a system that is needed for stability and performance. Uh, e- even if you become an expert in the kernel, there is always new technologies that come in to help you debug, find bugs that you continually have to keep learning as well as improving. So that's, that's the first thing that I would spell out. I would put probably honesty and humility second uh, and willingness to, opt- to owe up to mistakes, right? So it has actually is perfectly fine to make mistakes. At Sousa, it should be everywhere, but... <laughs> I like the saying, fall forward. I tell my team, you know, mistakes are falling, right? They look at it as a failure, but it's falling yeah. forward that's the key, right? You're moving forward through those mistakes and issues. You're not staying at the mistake or issue the whole time and keep repeating it. Exactly, yeah. and actually learning from it. But but for that, you actually need to say, okay, I made it, right? It was it was, it was was mine, and, <laughs> and I'm actually proud that I made that mistake, and I'm actually going to try a different way. So that's, that's, that's great. So... I, I, I was actually wanting to say the, the the final one is actually the having the courage to make the mistakes uh, and yes. to try and, and fail and yeah sometimes sometimes it hurts because you lose I don't know a week or month of of work if if you actually figure out that that was in the wrong direction but nevertheless you have definitely learned a lot and uh, the second time you you try to attack the problem you you'll solve it better. Uh, and, and that perhaps is not the best advertisement for SUSE, but as a 
enterprise Linux vendor, right? What we do is, is, is take a lot of open source projects. Currently, our code base is a billion lines of code for one release. Fairly large. That's a li- wow. little large, yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. And, and actually test it and we, we the bugs out, right? So, so very often we are sitting in front of a problem. An engineer would stare at it for a week, two weeks, and actually then figure it out using whatever techniques that they need to, and then fix one line of code. <laughs> and we would call that very productive. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. With a billion lines of code, that's productive. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Tell us a little, get a, give us the inside scoop, okay? So somebody is going to sit down for an interview. What does that process look like? How do those interviews go? Give us kind of the layout. I mean, it's, it's, it's actually pretty much straightforward, right? We first, we, we try to keep the interview process short and to the point. So we actually do not spend having everybody to go through a, a dozen of rounds of interviewing oh, with. Thank with goodness people. you said that. <laughs> that is getting obnoxious what people are putting through. I don't do that. So I don't worry, but but I hear well, stories of people I'm interviewing going, "Oh, you don't have twelve interviews? No, <laughs> no, no, not really. Uh, Actually, depending on the role, I mean, always you will have recruiting um, reach out to you first and just do a few basic questions, mm-hmm. and when, then when it gets to the actual interviews in the second stage, it is the interviewing manager that that drives that interview. Uh, that may have one or two rounds, um, depending on uh, how many candidates we are getting for that particular role. And we look at like the personality traits, the motivation for joining that or wanting to, jo- to, to join the company and uh, wanting that particular role. Some of the history of, of the person going through the CV actually verifying that what is in there is true. Yeah, then, then looking at, as I said before, any real work that is visible that those people left behind them, either in open source or if they are coming from a different direction than at least um, project that they worked on, looking at their problem-solving skills because, well, programming is very often, most of the time, mm-hmm. about solving problems uh, rather uh, well and making them. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> how, um, how about some of the how about, what are some typical questions that are asked during an interview maybe one one of the questions that, that i really like and uh, and i'll be spoiling it a little bit here but just for our audience just for our audience we want to give them a leg up uh, okay okay so 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 the one question that I, I love to ask is is if you can describe a particular problem yeah, I was I was talking about problem solving, right? Uh, in your career that you have encountered and that you have solved, and you are really proud about solving of, of solving it, right? And then the next follow up question is, of course, how did you go about uh, achieving that, uh, and, and how did you solve it? Well, so, I want to answer this question because I want to see if I pass here. So I ran into an issue just today, in fact, where Jitsi failed. Uh, we had an issue where the the, no, the volume wasn't going through, and I told Michael to reboot to solve it. He he eventually did, and it resolved the problem immediately. Which told me the power of well. Reboot. I would like to also answer that question and tell you about the experience <laughs> I had with Jitsi when we had to re- we did some rebooting, and that was a part of the solution. But there was some other parts. But I do want to pre- let you know that Ryan, I appreciate your assistance on solving this issue. 
Yeah. So did we get the job? We, are we hired? Basically, what they told you was that they turned it off and turned it back on. Yeah. Have you tried turning it off and but, on again? But we also displayed a level of synergy right there. And I think yes. that is very important for Enterprise. <laughs> are we hired? Um, yeah. Well, maybe. Maybe. maybe okay. We'll probably need to answer a few more questions. All right. Oh, we got that one done. <laughs> we made it to round two. Yes. But, yeah, but, but, but I, my advice would be actually not stopping at the turn it off and on again point. <laughs> yes. And, and, and maybe looking a little bit deeper into the, right. into the root cause of the problem. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> because it will come up the next time. Probably. That's right. We'll, we'll figure yes. it out. We, 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 we put it on our list for sure. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> definitely. So Vosh Tech, Sisi is an international company, so there are job postings from all across the world. What is the work from home opportunity look like now uh, since post COVID-19 or we're still in it, actually. Yeah, sort of. <laughs> yes. Almost. I, 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 I would love to be able to say post COVID nineteen. Yeah. I know it's not. Right. I mean, COVID has changed changed the world significantly, and uh, there is there is no way around that. It's probably not going back to the way it was before. And you you actually alluded to that saying post COVID nineteen. So when it's over, it probably will not be the same world as it was before, and mm. so. Well, SUSE was, or actually has been, is a company that has a vastly distributed uh, workforce, right? My group, it's the, 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 the Linux engineering, uh, Linux systems group, is roughly 300 people. And we are spread over all the continents with the exception of Antarctica. About a half of those people are working from home. Well, used to work from home, uh, actually, because now it's much more than a half in, in, in COVID. And so actually switching to a fully home office solution for the, for, for battling the pandemic was pretty much easy, right? Because uh, we are coming from the open source community development background where people Traditionally have been, when, when you look into the nineties, where, where the kernel was developed, where GCC was developed, the basics of the operating system, everybody was communicating, communicating over emails, over mailing lists. And that was it. And, and that's where we started as well. We are, of course, today using much more advanced technologies to communicate from including video and the advanced chat tools. But nevertheless, the fact that people may not be in the same place uh, has been pervasive through the company culture. Uh, we are nurturing an environment where it's absolutely fine to be working from home, to be working odd schedules, uh, for people to have a choice whether they want to work from home or actually whether they do prefer. And we have many such that do prefer to have proper desk and chair right. and, and a big workstation and be away from their kids when they are working. Yeah. <laughs> so so I'm, I'm actually really looking forward to uh, to returning to the normal mode of, of things when uh, well the offices are fully opened again and, and running running at full capacity. When you think about SUSE and its growth over the years, what has excited you the most to be a part of the company? Because there's been, you've been around in SUSE for a, quite a while. You said you started in 1999 and there's been a yep. lot of stuff that's happened over the years, a lot of exciting stuff. What do you think is like the most exciting or if you can't just pick one, top three? All right. Well, um, that's an interesting question. Um, I've started on April 1st, 99. It was in the end, not a joke, apparently. Um <laughs> 
Uh, so in the end, SUSE is an infrastructure company, right? So we are making products that are not very visible at the first glance. Even with the acquisition of Rancher, it's still infrastructure. It is, it is higher in the stack. But in the end, if there are products that are, are actually using uh, our components, it's that stuff that in the end is visible to people. Even with being an infrastructure company, I get to see where in, in all the places where uh, SUSE is running, right, uh, in, in our world. Just as everywhere that I look, and that may be the basic internet infrastructure. It may be phones. Well, actually, not right on the phone. There's Android with the Linux kernel. Yes, we have developed parts of that. So the work is actually there. The phone itself is not running SUSE, but your cell tower actually might, <laughs> although you don't see that. Right. Mm-hmm. It it's 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 running on trains, bridges. Actually, some bridges are controlled by it. Uh, you, you can find it everywhere, and and that is that is exciting. Either as a SUSE product or as um, an open source solution that just con- includes the stuff that that we have developed. That, that makes the work really satisfactory for me. Uh, really fulfilling and that's the reason why well i've stayed so long with the company and still planning on to continue doing so into the future that is awesome to hear i mean there's a i mean there's a lot of cool stuff that just knowing that you know that susa is on different things like you know uh cell towers i wouldn't even thought about that being a a thing where you would like it makes sense now that you said it right Uh, and also bridges because ryan is on the wrong side of the bridge a lot of the times so it's really it's it's nice to know that he can also have (laughs) with that uh, <laughs> but uh, thank you so much for talking with us today. Uh, for those interested in a career at SUSE, you can check out our forums. We posted a lot of stuff on the forums. So if you're interested in a career at SUSE, you can check it out by going to dealinforums.com where we posted the current openings that they have all across the globe. And you can also visit jobs.susa.com. Thank you so much for joining us today. And we hope to have you back on the show real soon. Thank you too. It was a pleasure. Mm-hmm. All right, we did it. You made it through the gauntlet. You made it through. <laughs> Listen, uh, after Thank those you. questions, I'd like to tell you that we officially would like to make you an offer. We can't pay you, uh, but we'd like you to be uh, our, our VP of technology here at DLN and fix this Jitsi issue. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no thank you so much for uh coming on i think the advice and the discussion points there are going to honestly help a lot of people there's so many people in our community right now looking to get into open source and we hear it every week in emails on forums and everything else is how do i get in here and i think a lot of people think that the natural path is you got to get all those certifications and i think your advice here was brilliant and is going to help a lot of people really just start getting involved to get their name out there, which is something we've been saying on the show. Mm-hmm. But someone with your credentials saying that, I think, is really going to make a big impact. So I really yeah, do appreciate I, I, it. I'm really glad that that this point will be shared because it is it is in the end important. This episode of Destination Linux is brought to you by Bitwarden. Get started right now with your free account at bitwarden.com slash DLN. Bitwarden is an awesome password manager that allows you to have peace of mind knowing that your online accounts are secure. How does it do that? Well, they provide tools to store your passwords in a secured vault, auto-generate those passwords for you, and even automatically fill them in into login forms so you don't have to do that. And you have access across all of your different devices like your web browser, mobile apps, desktop application, and even on the command line. Plus, 
Bitwarden seals and encrypts your private data with end-to-end encryption before it ever leaves your devices, so you know you're the only person with access to your data. Go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started. And did I mention you can get started for free? And you can, but I also think you want to check out their premium accounts because you get a ton of great features starting at less than a dollar per month. That's right. For less than a dollar per month, you get one gigabyte of encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F Duo, Vault Health Reports, Bitwarden Authenticator for temporary one-time passwords, priority customer service, and so much more for less than a dollar per month. And you might want to check out their family plans, which is great because it allows you to help people set up their accounts for them, like your, your spouses, your kids, your parents, your siblings, all that sort of stuff. You can make it a lot easier to get started with a password manager because you can help them get you know learn how to use it and be able to share passwords back and forth. And also be sure to check out their business organization accounts because they can do the same benefits you get from the family plans where you can share passwords and help people get started. You can do that with your business accounts and their organizational vaults. So get started by going to bitwarden.com slash DLN. And thanks again to Bitwarden for sponsoring Destination Linux. So this is really exciting news. As we look forward to the launch of the Steam Deck, each week the story with Valve keeps getting better. Woohoo! So this week, Pharonix is reporting that Valve and AMD have been caught red-handed, fixing red-handed. the CPU <laughs> scaling performance of AMD on Linux. This is, as so many people know, has been a long-term issue where AMD CPUs have not performed at their full capabilities in Linux. They are slow to ramp up to a higher performance state. And while there you know, are, are several really good workarounds, AMD never worked on this problem with the same effort as Intel did with their P-State scaling driver and other areas of power management. So the good news is, is that AMD and Valve have been working to improve the performance and power efficiency on Steam Play with Proton and Wine. And they spearheaded a new CPU performance scaling design for the AMD platform, which has better performance per watt scaling. Woohoo! And this will be something everyone with an AMD CPU can take advantage of. And of course, make... The Steam Deck, with its custom accelerated processing unit, or APU, built by AMD, even more performant when it launches. This is so exciting, (laughs) as so many people in our community have been switching over to AMD uh, GPU specifically, because they don't have to mess with drivers, you just install it. It was really funny, in in one of the rooms I was talking with, uh, there was somebody in there who was like, I just don't understand what I need to install with AMD now that I have got an AMD card and I'm like, nothing, like yes. nothing. You put the card All in, right. you bur- yeah. you boot your distro and you're ready to go. That That's it. You're done. Um, but that's confusing to people because they're so used to having to go hunt down drivers <laughs> and install those things. So AMD's done some okay work in the driver realm. The idea of Valve, when I say okay, I mean like not really okay, but I'm trying to be nice. Um, in the driver realm. <laughs> but having Valve partner with AMD here in an area where AMD is weak, and AMD knows they're weak. They've been doing a lot of hiring in yes. the Linux realm recently. Just this week, I think there was more hiring announced to try to ramp this up. So they know they've had an issue. But having Valve here as a partner, who's going to know it better than them about what you're going to need for your scaling states for a CPU in the gaming realm, which would also help people, of course, in rendering and other things as well with their AMD CPUs. Uh, this is really a, a, a match made in heaven, if you will. 
Yeah, I think it's mm-hmm. fantastic. When you were talking about how, you know, AMD's not been great or, you know, with the driver's development because they've, you know, they've been slow to get the best performance as possible, that sort of stuff. I haven't really noticed that. I, to me, it's fantastic in general. And I love the idea of just getting a hardware, plugging it in, loading Linux, and we're done. Like, that is amazing to me. And it's funny because when I, I previously had AMD before the, you know, the re, the revamping of the company, and it was probably one of the most uh, painful ways of setting up drivers. Like, the NVIDIA at the time was, like, the go-to. And now it's like, well, with AMD, you just you just get started and you just go. Well, That's the it. one exception mm-hmm. with that, and the reason why I mentioned it, and I know you haven't noticed it because you had, at the time you got your card, it, it had been a long period of time. But, for instance, getting the 6700 XT, if you get the latest uh. and greatest GPUs, <laughs> AMD does not have a good system for rolling out new drivers to distros especially that are not rolling distros and so that's where i think they could use some work in the future Ah, but again i appreciate the open source side of it but it's been four months can we get the 6700 xt drivers working please that is fair enough and i will say that my (laughs) my benefit of getting the hardware i got the the person who was doing the testing for my hardware was ryan so it was really nice that i didn't have to do that so so i guess in that perspective sure that's that's a good point yeah so also in the gaming realm, I want to talk about a game called Tyron. So with a now estimated, <laughs> did you all hear this news, by the way, 1.2 oh, yeah. million active Woo-hoo! Linux users on Steam right now for the first yeah. time in the four years I've been in Linux. I've seen this. This is growth. We're not <laughs> staying flat. We're not going down. It's actually grown hey, to 1.2 million people. May I ask a question? Uh-huh. The new Steam Deck, it's running what operating system? Oh, it must be Mac. I th- no, no, oh. no. It wasn't Windows. Oh, Linux. <laughs> and by the way, it's Arch. SteamOS. Hey, hey, Ryan, if yeah. the new Steam Deck has, has it been released yet? Uh, not yet. No. Oh, okay, okay. So the new Steam Deck is running Linux and mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. it hasn't been released yet. And we're already over a million users. We now top that 1%. So are you thinking it'll go up or down? When the Steam Deck comes out. Man, when that's a really tough one. Well, okay, well, let me help you. One. When the portable <laughs> gaming system that runs all the games you already own that would run on your PC can now run inside your pocket, do you think that would go up or down? Well, I just did the math and did you carry apparently, the uh, yeah, oh, I forgot that. Uh, yeah, it goes up. It goes okay. up. Oh, okay. <laughs> I really though, I mean, that is really fantastic because what you're seeing, and this is before that growth started prior to the announcement of the Steam Deck, right? And That's so right. what you're already seeing people and you're already seeing Valve start to invest inside of this operating system. And, and it feels like for those of us that have been here, feels like for years, we've been looking and going, hello, why don't you look over here and use this platform instead of that platform? This one can be all the things and you won't have any of the downsides. And then that platform over here really is terrible. And then you look at the decision that Microsoft is making with Windows 11 and the, the catastrophe that it's coming, they're literally shooting themselves in the foot. And at the same time, Linux has never been in a better position to gain right. more market share. And now they're partnered with the software company and they're making a device to make this happen. I don't, I I think this is the tip of the iceberg. Yes. I, I, I have to here. agree. Absolutely. <laughs> what were you going to say, Jill? Oh, I just, it's really exciting. Not, not just we'll be getting all these people on Linux, but it's also Arch. It's oh, cool, Ryan got that in know? right away. He, he said, <laughs> yeah, oh, by the I, way, I it was Arch. You couldn't that. even answer yeah. the question without, oh, by the way, it's Arch. It's like, <laughs> it's almost like a suffix form. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, so what, one of the things, though, talking about what you're saying, Noah, that I think has been really fun is my son had two games recently that he wanted to play. And normally it's like, all right, well, we can't play that in Linux. That, that's been three years of, right? It's not in Linux there and there. But recently it was Path of Exile and Overwatch, which, of course, is a, a Blizzard game, both now run through Proton. Both of these games you were able to run. When he said Path of Exile, I was like, I don't know. Downloaded in Linux. Mm-hmm. Guess what? Boots up. Works perfect. Like it's gotten, it's such a turning point in the last year of what has changed in gaming on Linux. It's unbelievable the work that they've done here. I'm just so blown away by it and so happy that now, like I don't have to tell people, oh, I can't play that game because I'm on Linux. Because now it doesn't look like Right, a lesser thing, even though it was never Linux's fault to begin with, of course. So one of the games you can play natively on Linux here is Tyron. And Tyron is a combination of tactical elements from very familiar uh, genres of RPG games, combat RPGs. And I love these types of games. And this game looks absolutely beautiful here. So you've got a combination of tactical elements from familiar strategic genres, is how they're describing it, with the ability to develop the characters in an RPG game out of combat. So you have this combination of strategic genres with character development, just like you have in typical RPG games. It's simple to learn, but hard to master. So you can get into this game if you like RPGs, something you're used to playing for, playing with, you'll be great because there's a lot of advanced concepts. But if you don't play RPGs, typically, you'd still be able to get in here and enjoy this game. You have unique character development and unit control system. You've got multiplayer so me and Michael could go in there and stomp some monsters, some ogres and other things if we mm-hmm. wanted to. Classic RTS and could be played comfortably with a gamepad and two playable races with dozens of different units on each side. This looks like a pretty cool game here by the developer Dragon Games and you can play it natively here on Linux. So go check it out. Just another game that you can play in the Linux ecosystem. In our software spotlight this week, we're going to talk about Tux Paint. TuxPaint is a free open source drawing program for children ages 3 to 12. It combines an easy to use interface with fun sound effects and encouraging cartoon mascot who guides children as they use the program. And kids are presented with a blank canvas and a variety of drawing tools to help them be creative. Now, there's a lot of great stuff in there. There you can do stamps, shapes, and it's very friendly, uh, user friendly with the way that the menu's laid out for the kids. And the fun sound effects are really nice when you, you know, select and use the different tools. And it, it is fair to say that TuxPaint is not the most modern designed application out there, but it, its goal is to be easy for kids. And uh, and I think it does that very well. Although it could use a new coat of TuxPaint. <laughs> See what I did there? <laughs> anyway, TuxPaint is likely in your distribution packager already, but uh, depending on the speed of your distros, it may or may not be there. But thankfully, it is available as a flat pack, so you can check it out right now at the Flat Hub. So uh, actually, Ryan mentioned that his kids use TuxPaint. So what is their experience with this? They love this. In fact, it's come up multiple times this week. So we had some friends over yesterday. They have young kids and they want to come up into this room and see all the computers. There's like six computers running here. It's obviously like kids paradise to go and start banging on keys and things. So one of the things I like to do is just pop up TuxPaint because it's just really fun for them. It's fun characters. It's a really easy design. They start learning how to move the mouse around. They click the colors. They draw all over, just like you were handing them crayons and markers downstairs, except they don't write on the walls and things with it. So it's actually much superior. (laughs) Yeah, hopefully. It's it's very superior to that. And also my daughter, she really loved this program. Uh, It's a very great introduction for kids into basic mouse control, 
and also getting their art out. So if you're one of those parents, you know, at home with your kids and want to do something fun, really check out Tux Paint. They'll love it. Our tip of the week this week focuses on kernel versions. Now, if you're like me, you run your system for years on end and couldn't do that in Windows, probably can't do that in Mac OS, but you can keep a system running for 10, 15 years and just perpetually upgrade uh, with Linux. The problem with that is oftentimes the boot partition, which by nature can't be encrypted, has to be set aside for so that the your your kernel images are there so the computer has something to boot and has the bootloader installed oftentimes that's limited to just a few hundred megabytes i think the default is like 700 something in in the latest versions of of uh, of ubuntu at the lts distro now with regular rolling kernel release with their cadence you're going to get about a year and a half two years and then your system's going to not be able to get any more kernel updates why well because we never remove kernel updates out of the system. You have to you have to trim those out. And the reason for that is it's oftentimes hugely beneficial to be able to roll back to an earlier kernel release. So let's talk about that for a second. When you boot up your machine, you get to Grub, you'll notice over time, you'll start with one version of Ubuntu and then it'll have the kernel version. And over time, you'll continue to add newer and newer kernel versions. You can always go back to the older kernel version. So if you ever have a piece of software or some reason that you need to go back to that older kernel version, you have the opportunity to do so. But once every once in a while, you're going to want to trim those older kernel versions that you're not using. So the first step before you do anything else, figure out what kernel version you're currently running on so you don't remove that. And you'll do that by typing the name UnameTacR. That was part of one of our earlier tips and tricks section. Now that we know what kernel we're on, we're going to run this command to look get a list of installed kernels, dpkg, tac tac list, and then in quotes, Linux dash images. And we'll have a, we'll have all of these commands written out for you in the show notes. So you can look, find them there by going to destinationlinux.network. After that, you're going to delete the kernels that you don't want or need anymore by using sudo apt-get remove Linux dash image dash, and then the version number of the kernel, which you want to remove. Once you've removed all of the old versions that you don't want, the next thing we need to do is we need to remove all of the packages that previously referenced those kernels that are no longer useful anymore, you'll go to sudo apt-get auto-remove. And finally, you can update grub with sudo update grub. Uh, we invite you to continue to tune in to tips and tricks, as well as go back and listen to previous ones if you'd like to get caught up if you're new to Linux. So a huge thank you to each and every one of you for supporting us by watching or listening to Destination Linux. However you do it, we love your faces if you want more DL, become a patron, like all the beautiful faces that are going to be here with us in the after show that we're about to do right after the ending each week of Destination Linux. In addition, every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern, we're now live at DLNlive.com. The best part, everyone is invited to watch the recording of Destination Linux each and every week. Hey, we can't wait to see you in the chat. And also go right now to dealinstore.com where you can pick up some swag. We have t-shirts, hoodies, mugs like Jill is showing. Also, we have so many different things. We got aprons, backpacks, tons of great stuff at dealinstore.com. Check it out. And make sure to check out all the amazing shows here on the Destination Linux Network. We have the Pseudo Show, the Ask Noah Show, This Week in Linux, the DOS Geek Channel, DLN Extend, Hardware Addicts, GameSphere, and get your Fedora hat on with our latest show, the Fedora Podcast. So go to destinationlinux.network and subscribe to all these shows to keep those penguins marching and the full Monty of Linux and open source awesome sauce. Also, real quick reminder, we have the DLN Megafest happening August 22nd, so be sure to be there. And everybody have a great week. And remember, the journey itself is just as important as the destination. Thanks, everyone.
Bye-bye. Yay. See you next week. <laughs>